going with us this morning. Let's stand together as we read from God's word together. Romans 11, starting in verse 33, says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he may be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Uh, in this passage, um, I'm just reminded that um, everything that has been created, all of creation, you and I, the um, nature around us, everything has been um, created so that God may be glorified through us and in us. Um, together, we have an opportunity this morning to do that as being part of the local church, um, as being the bride of Christ. So let's sing this morning together.
morning. We thank you for that truth that through all of the ups and downs in life, through all the trials, you are always with us. You never let go of us. God, I pray that you would just center our hearts on the gospel this morning. I pray that you would open all of our hearts to receive the truth of your word. Um, God, I pray that, that your word this morning would just change us uh, in radical ways, that we would all just grow to look more like you. And I lift that all up in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's really good to see you all out for worship this morning. My name is Dustin. I'm one of the pastors here at Huntington Community Church, and this is an incredible Sunday. It's the first Sunday of the month, which means a few things for us as a church. It means we have a new nation to pray for. Um, We have communion, celebrate the Lord's Supper together after the sermon, and another Sunday of baptisms. Uh, It's incredible the work that the Lord is doing. Um, We'll remind you, of course, at the end. Um, about instructions for that. We are so excited um, to celebrate the gospel um, with you guys. Um, Here at HCC, we say that we exist to glorify God. We want to see him glorified in our city, on our campus, and ultimately among the nations. And the way that we do that is we organize our ministries and everything from our personal ministries around our tables to community groups to outreach. We just want to equip us, the church, to know God, find community, make disciples, and change the world. And so if you want to maybe take a step into that or just have questions about um, what this church is about, um, the best way to do that is to fill out a Connect card. And right now, those are digital. So it's up on the screen. You can scan that. Also, there should be a uh, little uh, QR code in the pew in front of you. Um, if you don't want to do that, uh, you can talk to anybody you've seen um, up on stage this morning or talk to who invited you. We'd love to answer any questions about faith, uh, the gospel, um, or this church. So we'll leave that up for a little bit as a reminder. But we'd love to help you take Next steps. Um, There is just one opportunity today for me to tell you about, and that is Men's Fellowship Breakfast. Um, That is coming up March 12th. It's a Saturday morning at 8.30. These are so important for us as the men of this church to encourage one another. So even if you've never been, um, please make this your first one. We get to eat food, pray for each other, um, get instructed on the things of the Lord. It's a really, really good time and important um, for us as a family. So that is March 12th um, at 8.30. Um, 8.30 a.m., and it runs till about 9.30 or 10, so you can guard that uh, to spend time with your brothers. Um, here at HCC, we don't pass a plate um, for tithes and offerings, but if you want to give, you can give online, or, well, there usually is an offering plate back there. I don't know. Oh, it's in the foyer now. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> there's an offering plate um, over in the foyer if you want to uh, worship the Lord through your generosity um, out there. And so now, as I mentioned, it's the first Sunday, so for the month of March, as a family, we'll be praying for the nation of Bolivia. And so we have a video to show us how we can do that. Bow your heads with me. Let's lift up the people of Bolivia to the Lord. Um, uh, Father, thank you so much for technical difficulties. Uh, Lord, I love um, reminders of our 
dependence on you. And so, God, thank you um, that nothing catches you by surprise, even when things catch us by surprise. Um, Lord, we know that you sent Jesus to die to purchase people from Bolivia. And, Lord, we just ask now that you would strengthen the church there, that they would be bold, they would love you deeply, and that that love for you would overflow into lives that look different, that their good deeds and their sharing of good news would bring glory to you in their lives. Um, God, we do ask that you would save more. Um, Lord, we want to see revival missionaries sent out from this nation. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would do your will on earth as it is in heaven, um, there in Bolivia. That's what we long for. And so, God, for us here in Huntington, I pray you'd give us a conviction and a way of reminder um, that this would not be the only time uh, that we lift Bolivia up um, to you. And God, so help us to lock arms with our brothers and sisters there in prayer so that you might do a great work, continue doing a great work um, in that nation that you dearly love. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Kids, you guys are dismissed for class. Uh, good morning. If you're a guest, uh, just want you to realize we're not a perfect church. That was a great illustration that we are not a perfect church. Sunday morning is not a show or an event for us. Uh, we're not trying to have everything together. That years ago would have uh, bothered me greatly that that didn't work. Um, I've gotten over myself a lot over those years of just trying to have Sunday mornings perfect for guests and that. You know, we have it all figured out. We don't, um, just because um, you, you already know that. So, uh, so I'm excited just to be here this morning, just start a new series. Um, before we jump into Habakkuk chapter 1, I do just want to give an update. Uh, Michael Loveday, our youth director, took nine students to YEC, Youth Evangelism Conference, up in Clarksburg this weekend. They had a great time. I asked my kids... Um, they didn't fall too far from the tree. I asked them, how, how did it go? They said it was good. You, you get those answers? You know, Olivia, I'll come home from work and she'll say, how was your day? It was good. How was yours? And she, well, this morning, Isaiah did this. this so they didn't fall too far from, from the tree. So we begin our new sermon series, um, this minor prophet, um, Habakkuk. Some of you may be wondering, why in the world would we go through a minor prophet on Sunday morning? Aren't those minor prophets, like, boring? Like, they're hard, kind of hard to find. Like, some of you are glad you have a device right now where you can just hit Habakkuk, right? Some of you are going to be flipping through your Bibles. Maybe don't feel bad about going back um, uh, at the beginning. shows you everything, you know, what page it's on. You can go back, table of contents, find it. Um, it's, it's probably only two pages in your Bible if you've got a page, um, so it's three chapters. Some of you may be wondering, why are we going through this book? You know, why aren't we going through something from New Testament? Or if we're going to do Old Testament, why not do something like, um, I don't know, Genesis or uh, a psalm or something? Well, as long as there are people begging the Lord, how long, O oh Lord? How long must I watch this suffering? Or why, O oh Lord, why is this happening then there's a need to preach Habakkuk. I'm guessing we've all asked a similar question, a, a question to where it just seems like God has just checked out from our life. He's just gone like God doesn't even care about what's happening in or around you. You felt that way before? 
Questions like, how long, O oh Lord, must I endure this cancer? Why, O oh Lord, did we have that miscarriage? How long, O oh Lord, must I watch my loved one waste away? Why, O oh Lord, can I, why can't I find a spouse? What's wrong with me, Lord? Where are you? Why, O oh Lord, did you allow that thing, that thing that I've never told anyone, why did you allow that to happen? The book of Habakkuk becomes extremely real, extremely fast. In this short three-chapter book, we have this dialogue between Habakkuk and God, in which Habakkuk twice complains to God about the world's injustice, and twice God answers him. But Habakkuk probably wished God would not have answered him. But I'm so thankful that he did because the answers that God gives um, helps us to better understand the character of God. So over the next three weeks, we're going to be addressing some difficult topics, things like theodicy. Theodicy is the vindication of divine goodness and providence in the view of the existence of evil. Or commonly asked today, why does God allow bad things happen to good people? You ever thought that? You ever wondered that? We'll be looking at, where is God during my suffering? Is it okay to be angry at God? Why would God use evil people to accomplish his greater goods? In our sermon series title, How Can I Trust God During Difficult Times? So those are just a few of the difficult topics that we'll be addressing over the next three weeks. So let's turn our attention to this minor-sized book and see God's major plan for redemption. Uh, Verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contentions arise. So the law was paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who marched through the breath of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up on earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Let's pray. God, we come to you um, often like Habakkuk does, questioning you, wondering where you are. This morning we know that you are here, that you are present. Lord, I pray that 
you would help us, that you'd give us the grace to see you in our suffering. That while we're going through trials and troubled times, that we would cling to you. Lord, give us eyes to see you this morning. Prepare our hearts to hear a heavy message, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. My title this morning is um, A Poor View of Man Leads Towards a Bitterness of God. Um, So before we unpack this passage, let me give a little bit of background of Habakkuk. So if you're a linear thinker like I am, I love timelines, I love charts. Um, If timelines make sense to you, then Habakkuk would be unfolding around early 600s, late 500 B.C., Babylon was ruled by the Chaldean Empire. The Chaldeans, as we see from this passage, they were aggressive, nasty, ruthless in battle. The Chaldeans were coming into Judah, killing and capturing Jews. So this was the beginning of the second exile of the Jews. Um, Maybe a year and a half ago, we went through the book of Nehemiah. If you're familiar with the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, This is the exile that Ezra and Nehemiah returned from to rebuild the temple and the the walls of Jerusalem. So it kind of helps maybe put things in context. Um, We don't know much about um, the man Habakkuk himself. It doesn't give us much detail. We don't know who his parents are. That's normally something, you know, this person is the son of this person. We just don't have that from Habakkuk. We don't know who his parents are. We don't know what tribe he came from. Uh, We simply know that he is a prophet And he's been given this burden. That's kind of it. The book itself is found in the 12 minor prophets in your Bible. They're kind of put together. Um, That's kind of how they're um, organized for us. Um, But don't think of minor prophet as being minor of importance. It's really important. It's minor in size. The minor prophets are shorter than the major prophets. Um, Books like... Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Those are longer, so they're called major prophets, but it's not that they're more important. The book takes place with the backdrop of Habakkuk watching this Chaldean empire come in and conquer what's left of Israel. Israel at this point is two, like you have um, Judah and Israel. They've kind of split already. Um, Israel was a rebellious nation The Jews had once again forgotten the one true God, and they began to worship other gods and idols. This is very similar to um, the pattern we've seen in the book of Judges. For those of you who are in community groups, um, most of our community groups are going through the book of Judges. We've seen this pattern over and over and over again. In the book of Judges, uh, the people did what was right in their own eyes. That's kind of the theme. And God would give them over to their enemy. We've seen that over and over um, throughout that book. Then after a season of being slaves, uh, the Israelites would cry out for help. Um, They'd cry out for God to to hear their cries, send them a judge or some kind of deliverer, and God would send someone who would rescue them from their enemies. And after some period of time, they would have peace and rest, things looked good. But then after that period of time, they would begin to do what's right in their own eyes, and that pattern would just continue to go over and over again. So keeping all that in mind, let's turn back now to Habakkuk. Let's unpack Habakkuk's first complaint. So that's where we are this morning, 1 through 11. Habakkuk's complaint, God's response. Um, This is where I think he reveals his poor understanding of man. 
terrible theology here from Habakkuk, which shows you that even a prophet going through a difficult time can skew your theology. This is why it's easier to counsel others than it is yourself. You know, when somebody else is going through a hard time, you can tell them what they need to do. But when you go through the hard time, you begin not to make sense. You begin to have skewed theology. So here's Habakkuk, verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save why do you make me see iniquity and why do you either look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Can you identify with him right now? Can you feel his anguish? The pain that Habakkuk is dealing with in these first four verses. We see in verse 2, Habakkuk asks, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Here Habakkuk, he's crying for God to rescue, but the God of salvation refuses to save, at least how Habakkuk wants him to save. And I think we've all had moments where we feel like God does not hear us. Where are you, God? I thought you loved me. I thought you said you'd never leave me. Maybe you feel like God just doesn't care about you right now. That he's just checked out on you. Maybe you've done some sin that you feel like is so horrendous that God just doesn't want to be around you. Habakkuk says he cries out. The word cry here means to shout out or roar. Have you ever done that with God? Just kind of roar out. Just agony. I think many of us have experienced a kind of pain when the only thing that makes sense in that moment is to shout out or to roar to or at God. We found out in verses 3 and 4 about the situation which led Habakkuk to cry out. The prophet says, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you either look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. We see in verse 3 that he's troubled that God would make Habakkuk, his prophet, see this gross sin taking place. That God would have the audacity to just sit back and watch it all unfold. He sees destruction, violence all around him. The Chaldeans are coming in and Habakkuk is watching his people suffer and die. My mind can't help but to go to Ukraine this morning. God, where are you? Why are you allowing the Russians, the wretched Russians to invade us. Imagine that's the questions of many believers in Ukraine right now. Where are you, God? Why aren't you stepping in? I mean, this is essentially what Habakkuk is seeing unfold before him. You can picture it now. 
There's not jets and tanks, but there's a multitude of horses and soldiers coming in. Imagine all the wicked that comes with war. And they're attacking God's chosen people. I mean, out of every nation, God chose Israel to be his special people. And now God is allowing his special people, his chosen people, to face suffering and injustice. This is, this is a real book, right? Like, this is real. It's raw. But I think this is also where Habakkuk is a bit skewed in his view of man. He's allowing the situation, what he's seeing, feeling, to influence his anthropology. He says in verse 4, So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. A couple things wrong here. It's like Habakkuk knows that the Lord is sovereign, but what he's watching, what he's observing around him appears to reflect something completely different than a sovereign God. He's struggling to rightly interpret his daily realities. He's basically stating a question that we often hear in our culture, and maybe you have asked yourself, why does a good and loving God allow bad things happen to good people the question that Habakkuk asks is why is the wicked surrounding the righteous well here's one of the problems he calls them righteous being a Jew does not make you righteous any more than having a Christian parent makes that child a Christian in fact Romans chapter 3 which I'm just going to throw this out there I have probably more cross-references today than I've ever had in my entire preaching time, okay? So don't feel like you have to go to every single one of them. Maybe just jot them down because there's many. Um, Thank you, Joe, for putting all those in today. In Romans 3, Paul is quoting from Psalm 14 when he says this, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Some strong language. Habakkuk says, hey, the the wicked are coming in around the righteous. Paul's saying, no, they're not. No, they're not. The question, why does a loving and merciful God allow bad things happen to good people, is the wrong question to even ask. It is asked with the presupposition that God owes man something good. There's one thing that God owes us. There's one thing that we all deserve. It's called his wrath. Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Death is what God owes us. Because we've rebelled, all of us. But this verse, thankfully, doesn't end there. Paul goes on to say, 
but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Instead of Habakkuk claiming that the wicked are surrounding the righteous, he should have said the wicked are surrounding the wicked. The better question that Habakkuk should have asked is, how could a holy and righteous God know what we've done and allow us to breathe his air for another day? The first question starts with the supremacy of man. The second question is about the supremacy of God. It's so easy for us to look out around the world, maybe just across the street, maybe in your own house, and begin to think, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as that guy. You know, he can be a jerk. I'm a pretty nice guy. You know, if you look around long enough, surely you'll eventually find someone that will help you justify yourself. If you're struggling with that, let me know. I know some people. But that guy or that girl is not the standard for righteousness. The grading scale for righteousness is not horizontal. It's vertical. Christ is the standard by how God judges who is righteous. You may be more moral than your neighbor, more moral than someone at work, but being more moral doesn't make you righteous. Only Christ makes you righteous. And a holy and righteous God must punish sin, which brings us to God's response in verses 5 through 11. Listen to how God replies, verse 5. Look among the nations, Habakkuk, and see and wonder and be astounded. Four imperatives there. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Let me read that again in case you missed it. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breath of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth for themselves, from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. This is God's reply. We see in verses 5 and 6 that God is actually taking credit for raising up the Chaldeans to conquer Israel. God is doing something so profound, so mysterious, that he informs Habakkuk that he wouldn't even understand God's plan if he told him. Maybe it's a good thing that God does not audibly answer us in our times of suffering. He, he may actually tell us something that we could not bear if we heard. Let's be honest. It seems at least a bit strange 
that God would use evil people to carry out his purposes, right? I'm sure that's where your minds went to. At least it should. We should ask that question. It's a good question. But has God ever used good people to accomplish his purpose? I can only think of one time in all of history where God has used someone good to accomplish his plan. Jesus is the only good man. Jesus was without sin. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. All throughout history, except with Jesus, God has used rebellious, wicked people to fulfill his promises. The same is true for us today. See, we look at the Chaldeans as being so gross. But I bet they're not much different than we are. Just as God uses wicked, rebellious people to be a part of his grander story, so he has done the same with you and with me. And some of you, you're, you want to push back. You're like, no way am I like the Chaldeans. Look at what they're doing. Well, again, let's look at what Paul says from the New Testament. In Acts chapter 13, the Jews, they're baffled, they're angry at the idea that God would allow the Gentiles, those wicked and nasty people, to be a part of his plan of redemption. Paul is trying to show them in Acts 13 that from the Old Testament that this has been the plan that God has been unfolding since the very beginning, that they, they should have seen this coming. Paul, speaking to the men of Israel in Acts 13, Paul says this in verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe, even if one tells it to you. Does that sound familiar? What do you think Paul's quoting there? Acts 13 is a reference to Habakkuk 1.5. He likens us Gentiles to the Chaldeans. Just as Habakkuk has baffled, uh, he was baffled that, that God would raise up this wicked generation to further his purpose, so also God is using us Gentiles, children of wrath, in order to further his kingdom. This morning, it's so important that we see a few things about God's character from Habakkuk 1. First, I pray this, I pray that you hear this. God is primarily, if you're taking those underlined primarily, God is primarily concerned with your spiritual well-being, not your physical well-being. Let me let that set in for a moment, because that's hard to hear. I know it is. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 5, Jesus says, verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. God is primarily concerned with your spiritual well-being more than your phys physical well-being. The quicker you understand this truth, the quicker you will begin to find unshakable joy through difficult times. 
Suffering is tricky for us. How do we filter that through this lens with God? And disciples didn't quite understand suffering either. In John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples walked by a man who had been blind since birth. Disciples asked, verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We need to understand that all suffering falls underneath the watch of a God who is good, sovereign, and wise. He sees it all. He's not asleep at the will. In your suffering, he didn't hit the snooze button. We see this kind of language all throughout the Bible. But it's, it's funny to me how even myself, I'm still shocked through suffering even though I see it all throughout the Bible, nowhere does God break any promise to us when we have suffering in our lives. Jeremiah 17 does something similar. Jeremiah 17, verse 1, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. Notice Judah has sin and it's being written with this point of diamond. Why would you use a point of of a diamond to write on a heart. What does this show us about the heart of Judah? It, it's hard. Israel has a hardened heart. And on the horns of their altars, while their children remember their altars and their ashram, beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains and the open country, now look at this, your wealth and all your treasures, okay, I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you, what does it say? Serve your enemies in a land that you do not know, for in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever." See, earlier Habakkuk had said that God, um, that his justice never went forth. First off, I mean, notice the definitive language when Habakkuk says that, God, your justice never goes forth. Oftentimes when you're in a hard situation, you're more prone to use definitive language, words like always, never. You know, you're always late. You never put your clothes in the hamper. Definitive language is just not fair to the other party. Habakkuk is too emotional, and he says God's justice never goes forth. Habakkuk is only concerned about justice on the Chaldeans. He doesn't even realize that God is bringing forth his justice. God is using the Chaldeans as an instrument for Israel's justice. In fact, God is actually keeping his word by bringing the Chaldeans against them. Here is a promise. So sometimes, sometimes we think, man, God's breaking his promises against us. Well, here's a promise from God made to Israel about if they don't keep God's law. This is what's going to happen. Deuteronomy 28. 
Verse 49, the Lord says, The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. This is exactly what we see happening in the days of Habakkuk. God is keeping his word to Israel. He's full of justice here. They're getting exactly what they deserve. Which leads us to the second characteristic we see from Habakkuk 1. God's ways are often mysterious. The prophet Isaiah reminds us that God does not operate in the same way that we do. Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, we cannot see the bigger picture. We are walking the streets with a ground-level view while God is observing things from 30,000 feet above. We need to pray for God's will to be done and trust in a God who is good, sovereign, and wise. And lastly, God's ways are often misunderstood. We often think that God does not care about our hurting, our suffering, when in fact he deeply feels our pain. My favorite psalms grounds us in the understanding that God is near to us. Listen to the psalmist describe the Lord's intimacy in Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you knew it. You know it altogether. God knows you better than any other person. No person knows your word before it's on your tongue. Praise God for that. You hem me in. Behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God is with you. Same truth found in um, beautiful Psalm 23. It's actually the second song we sang this morning, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's hard to read that now and not like sing it like Matt Redman, this English accent. I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So even in your time of suffering, which some of you, you may be going through that right now. A lot of these questions Habakkuk's asking, maybe what you, the burden you come in this morning with. When you think God is idly watching, Scripture reminds us that God is near, that God is present, that He is walking with you even in the valley, even in the shadow of death. I pray that His presence, His power leads us to this deeper trust. That we trust in a God who's good, sovereign, and wise. 
and not what we just see around us, not just what we feel. I pray that this deeper trust helps remove anxieties and worries that come from our doubting. See, wonder, be astounded that the holy God has not destroyed you and given you over to your enemy, but has lavished upon you his amazing grace. See, Christ has defeated your enemy. There's no troops coming in today. Amen? No troops coming in, crossing the border to capture you. The believers in Ukraine can say the same thing. Yeah, the Russians are coming in, but that's not their enemy. We're all going to have one life to live, whether it's from the Russians' invasion or old age. But Christ has defeated your enemy. In Christ, you are a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So let trouble come. Let us stand firm, stand strong. The good news of Christ, that we cannot be shaken. Let these truths remind us this morning of what we get to celebrate in the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we have a picture of what Christ has defeated. So this morning, Dustin's already mentioned we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Think about the elements for a moment. The bread represents his body broken for us. The cup represents his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. This was war. This was bloodshed. He died so that we could live. And it should have been our death, but he took your place. So this morning, as you come to the table, a couple of things to remember. Come clean, come pure to the table. That means is that you just confess your sins that you repent, turn from any sin, that you come in a worthy the manner of the table. And you take to that cup, and if you're a guest this morning, we have two cups together, so they're just stacked. You just take it, the bottom cup has the bread. Think about Christ's body being broken for you. And then it's cup, which is juice, think about the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of your sin, that you should have died of your rebellious, wretched ways, but yet Christ, in his kindness, and his goodness, he took that for you. So let that truth that he's coming back for us, he's prepared a place for us, that he loves you, you are his son, his daughter. God loves you. So let all that truth just set in as we take the cup this morning. Let's pray. God, as we prepare to come to the table, I pray that we would come in a worthy manner. Not that we're coming in a um, righteousness of our own, 
It's not about being moral this morning. It's about being forgiven. About clinging to your righteousness that you you give to us. So Lord, may we not look at this cup too lightly. May we not look at it as a, a snack before the snacks. But may we realize that you did battle. And you defeated our enemy. And you did that by laying down your life for us. That you died so that we may live. May that truth help us fight during difficult times to know that even you went through suffering. You are the beloved son and you went through trial. You suffered. So may that truth lead us to greater love for you. We pray this in Christ's name.
participating in the, the Lord's Supper. I don't want to rush that. That is something that um, I encourage you to just take the time that you need. Um, but if you're ready, let's stand together and continue to sing.
waters cover the sea. Church, this morning, uh, the glory of the Lord fills this earth now, even as we sit here. And there's going to come a day where all people, whether they follow God or not, are going to come to a realization that this earth is filled with His glory. So I just pray that this week as we go forth, um, we would just be emboldened to share the truth of the gospel, that life-giving gospel with the people around us, so that when that day comes where all eyes are open to the glory of the Lord, that it would be a day of rejoicing for all those around us, uh, that there would be none sad because they did not know Christ before his glory was revealed, uh, that we would just be used as vessels of goodness so that we could go forth and just proclaim the truth of Christ, so that we have such a great cloud of witnesses around us when that day comes and we can celebrate in the glory of the Lord together. And just a reminder today, um, we have baptisms this morning. Uh, those are going to be taking place downstairs. So now you all are dismissed and just as you're able, start making your way downstairs and we're going to do some baptisms. Baptisms.